Last Sunday, we began this lesson, and that was part one. And today is part two, but we'll review part one before we get to part two. Our title is Positioning Paul in the Eternal Plan of God. Positioning Paul in the Eternal Plan of God, which it really takes the two kind of themes that we promote for the book of Ephesians— some would say that the theme of Ephesians is the eternal plan of God, that God is revealing from ages past what his plan of salvation has always been. And then I would argue that the theme is in him, our position in Christ. Because the first three chapters are our position in Christ, and the last four chapters is our practice in Christ. And so when you take those two thoughts, they're both true. They're both being communicated into, uh, from this book by the Apostle Paul, but essentially what you have is Paul is writing from prison to the church at Ephesus, and he is writing to challenge them, to encourage them, to spur them on to do the work of the gospel. And in doing so, he reminds them of their spe uh, special position as Christians, and he reminds them of God's eternal plan and their place in that plan. When it comes to positioning Paul, uh, I looked at chapter 3, and you notice, like, what's, what's being communicated? What's the, the, the point of this? Look at verse 1. It says, for this reason, I, Paul. Verse 2, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Verse 3, as I wrote before you. By referring to this verse 4, when you read, you can understand my insight. So, Paul is talking about the mystery of God. He's talking about God's plan of salvation, but he is really emphasizing his role in all of this. And when it comes to positioning Paul, all right, there's a couple of different illustrations we can look at to understand what that means. Uh, any, any checkers players out there? All right, no, none of you. All right, are you too ashamed? My friends will mock me if I say I play checkers. All right, I know you got all sorts of things on your phone and stuff, but every once in a while, I'll play a game of checkers uh, with my kiddos when I'm over at my parents because that's what you do. Um, and you position the pieces on the board. And it, is that negotiable? No, they're all the same, right? You have to put them on the certain spots. But I never move the back row. You just don't do that in checkers, all right? My kids do, so I beat them and it's fun. Um, I'm not the dad that like gives in and just lets them win. Well, maybe every once in a while, but I, I've positioned them, okay? Uh, in Tanner's flag football game on last Saturday, we were playing a team and they had not scored a touchdown all year. And so it was really fun to play them. Um, and during the course of the game, one of the moms who was taking pictures was like, hey, y'all got any room on your team? Maybe next year you can be on ours. But this sweet kids and all this fun stuff. And so uh, they got a really long play. And they got to the three-yard line. And I'm like, man, these kids are finally going to score a touchdown. And they got the ball and they ran backwards. And I'm like, oh, it's never going to happen. So I went out and I position our players on defense to cover the whole field, right? I'm positioning them. Well, I took our left corner and I ran him over to the right side of the field. And he neither knew what was going on nor cared what was going on. But it left this entire side open, right? I positioned him so the other team can get a touchdown. And I told their coach, I said, hey, sweep right. And he looked at it and he goes, yes. And so he sweep right and the little boy stopped and he ran all the way to the left. And then there you know why they didn't get any touchdowns. But I positioned the player 
where I wanted him to accomplish what was going on, right? God chose Paul in his eternal plan and positioned Paul in a special position to minister to the Gentiles, to further the gospel, to plant churches, and to equip elders and pastors. And in this book, in this section, we're looking at how God has positioned Paul in his eternal plan. In part one, we asked the question, and this is outline point number one. I even gave you a word or two. Who is Paul? Who is Paul? And you know, we already looked at chapter one, verse one. We saw that it was Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. We, we saw that aspect. Well, now we learn a little bit more about Paul. It says, for this reason, I, Paul. And there are three subpoints. The first one is he is a prisoner of Christ. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. And we go back and we remember the Jews or Israel were Abraham's descendants and the Gentiles is anyone else. And so he would go to a place like Ephesus and he would preach the gospel at the synagogue, which is where the Jews were. It was kind of their church. Some would believe, many would reject him. And then he would go out into the city and he would find the pagan Gentiles and he would preach the good news there. And so this church is a mixture and a combination of those Jews and of those Gentiles. And he's saying, look, especially for you Gentiles, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus for you. And it means that literally he is in prison. He is in prison right now because of his association with the Gentiles. The Jews hated the Gentiles. And remember, Paul had brought some Gentiles with him to the temple. And so there is an uproar in Jerusalem and he was arrested. But we also see, B, he is a steward of God. He is a steward of God. We know that steward is someone that has been entrusted with a special position or a privilege. Whether they have been left in charge of a, a kingdom or a city or a town or a household. We looked at Joseph and Potiphar how Joseph, although he was a slave, arose to be Potiphar's right-hand man. And Potiphar didn't worry himself with the running of the house and the ordering of supplies and all of that stuff because Joseph was faithful and competent. He ran all of that stuff on behalf of Potiphar. Verse two, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. He died on the cross he rose again, all right? He then appeared to uh, hundreds of disciples, but then he left them. And when he left them, the Holy Spirit then came. And the Holy Spirit empowered believers to carry on the work that Jesus had started. And Paul was one of those apostles. And he was entrusted by God to take that grace, to take that good news, and to preach it specifically to the Gentiles. So that we see, see, he is a conduit of the Spirit. He is a conduit of the Spirit. And this, the word conduit here, that's a little bit harder to get from the text. Basically, a, a conduit is something, any means of trans, uh, transmission of information. So the Spirit is going to give Paul the info, and he's going to take the info, 
and he is going to preach the info. So he's a conduit there. It says that by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. And you're like, okay, I kind of get the conduit thing. Will you say metal is a conduit of electricity? All right. What about the spirit? How does the spirit play into this? Well, when you look at verse five, it says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles, which is Paul, and prophets, how? In the spirit. The Holy Spirit both indwelled Paul, like he indwells you, believer, but the Holy Spirit would reveal uh, pieces and mysteries that before had not been made known. And so you see the, the work of our triune God. Paul is a prisoner of Christ. He is a steward of God, and he is a conduit of the Spirit here. And was he a good conduit? Yes. He received it. And what happened in verse 2? You have heard. He received. They heard. He had related it on to them. And then we pause for a moment and we think, okay, well, that's Paul. And we understand how God has positioned Paul in his eternal plan. But how has God positioned you? How has God positioned you? No, he, he hasn't called you as an apostle, right? Because an a, apostle, someone who's seen the risen Lord, not you, all right? But we all have been positioned to be stewards. We have all been called to sacrifice like a prisoner would. We've all been called to share the gospel, to share the good news. Every single one of us who are in Christ, you have received so much. You've received so much. And so what are you supposed to do with that? You're supposed to do the work of the Lord. Uh, you remember the whole, the, the parable of the, the stewards and the parable of the talents, all right? And those who were faithful received what? More responsibility. I don't know if you fully comprehend the amount of biblical knowledge that you have rolling around in that brain of yours, Okay? Since you were two, you learned the Bible was true. And you probably already memorized Psalm 46 for Mrs. King as well. And then you have done Awana and you have all of these verses. And you went to our, our children's ministry and you've been a part of our youth group. And most youth groups would probably faint if we showed them our Bible quiz curriculum. Which even if you've gotten a quarter of that, praise the Lord. Okay? Guys, you have received so much. You know so much of the Bible right? You have gotten good teaching and you had it modeled by great leaders and you have a, a wonderful pastor and we have a, a high uh, philosophy of God and of his word. So much is expected of you. Much is expected of you. When I was in high school, there were kids who went to other churches and I do believe that some of them were genuinely Christians. They genuinely loved the Lord, but their church just spoon fed them baby food. Little baby food. They didn't think they could handle it. They didn't think they could take it. All right? You have been force-fed lots. And you're like, yes, hopefully. And you know so much. And so if much is given to us, what are we responsible for? A lot. We should be examples. And we should be pointing people to Jesus. We should be lights in a dark and dying world. The second point on our outline that we answered last week is, why is Paul telling them this? 
Why does he stop here? We know when we get to chapter 4, chapter 4 we get to all the application. We get to a lot of uh, what is our practice in Christ. Verse 4, by referring to this, well what's he talking about? The info he just talked about. His role in all of this, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Well, why is that important? Well, remember, Paul is their teacher. Paul is the one who established this church. Paul is writing to them, and he wants them to know, hey, Paul knows what he's talking about. We understand that Paul has a, he has more info than us. And so we need to come to him and learn. Verse 5, this insight, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Now, what did they know? God just didn't tell us everything at the start. Well, I want you to flip back to Genesis 3. We have a couple of places that we'll turn to together. And we remember this is after the fall. Adam and Eve sinned. And there are going to be consequences for that sin. And in Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you, and that's the serpent, and the woman. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, someone give me the short version. What's, what's God talking about here? Jesus destroying Satan and Satan's work. So when was Jesus bruised on the heel? The cross, right? And at that same time, he destroyed Satan, okay? Did God say all of that in Genesis 3? Did Adam and Eve say, oh yeah, there's a guy named Jesus. It'll be Mary and Joseph, virgin birth, and he's gonna come and he's gonna die on the cross and then three days later, he's gonna rise again. No, they, they didn't get that part. They didn't get that part. Flip over to, to Genesis 12. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram comes to know the Lord saves him, calls him to be the father, the patriarch of the people of Israel, God's chosen people. And he says, and in your descendants, the whole world's going to be blessed. Well, who's he talking about? Jesus. This promised seed is going to come through the line of Abraham, but Abraham didn't get the whole picture, did he? No. He trusted God. He had faith in God for the promised one to come, but he didn't get the whole picture. You guys can flip back to the book of Ephesians. Actually, flip to John 20. Flip to John 20. And while you're doing that, let me read Galatians 3.8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So we need to realize that Genesis 12, God is sharing the gospel. But 
it's a bit of a mystery as far as how all of that will play out. We have the whole picture. Why? Because of Jesus and because of Paul, but Abraham did not have the whole picture. John 20, verse 8. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered and he saw and believed. So they come to the tomb, they see that Jesus isn't there anymore. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he might rise again from the dead. They didn't see all of it. They didn't understand all of it. And you have Isaiah 53 that pictures even the cross itself and the nails that the Messiah would take. But they didn't see all of it. Paul is getting more data and he's getting more information. Remember, they had the Old Testament. Paul is now living in a time when they are writing the New Testament. And these Gentiles probably hadn't heard of any of this before Paul rolled into town. Or they only knew some of it. And so he is relaying to them the eternal plan of God, the mystery of Christ. Let's move on to part two. Part two, what insight did Paul have? And in part two, we just have one question, and it's going to be the rest of this section. What insight did Paul have? And when, he, when, I, when I say insight, we got to go back to verse four. When you read, you can understand my insight. Insight means the content of understanding. What did Paul know that was a mystery that they might not know and understand? Well, follow along with me. Let's look at verse 6. To be specific. That word's always hard for me. I'm glad I got that. To be specific. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, you being the good Bible student that you are and connecting the dots that I already gave you an outline, all right, there are three fellows here. No, wait, that sounds weird. It's not three people, all right? There are three things about the Gentiles that he's going to point out. And you can see it right here from the text. The insight that he is now reminding them of or revealing to them is Paul's ministry to the Gentiles and what happens to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are what? Fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and they are fellow partakers of the promise. This is the part that Paul is reminding them of or revealing to them if they have not understood this before. We already looked in chapter 2 how before Christ, the Gentiles were, were excluded from the covenants of God. They were excluded from the promises and excluded from the inheritance. But through the cross, God broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And he brought the Jews who believed in Jesus and the Gentiles together. We've always heard that phrase that the Jews are God's what? Chosen people. Israel, which is Israel, then kind of goes into Jews. Israel is God's chosen people. And so you had Abraham, who's going to get special revelation, and he's going to get special interaction. The rest of the world isn't necessarily getting that, but Abraham is. 
And it's Abraham's descendants that God is going to prioritize and that God is going to bless. And he's going to give them, you know, King Saul and King David and King Solomon and all of this stuff. And the Gentile very easily could go, man, I wish I was a Jew. And obviously, the, having the word of God, being God's chosen people was an advantage. It was a privilege. But what did most of the Jews do with that advantage and privilege? They hardened their heart to it. And they said, ah, <laughs> I'm a Jew. Doesn't matter what I do. I'm getting into heaven. And that's the mentality that Jesus had to fight against, right? And it really surprised them when he confronted them about that. But for us, it's easy to go, oh, I'm just a stinky old Gentile. Well, you have to realize that we're all stinky, all right? We're all stinky. We're all dead in our sins. But if we believe in Jesus Christ, we are washed, renewed, and we are now fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise. So who is better? Who is better? It's one of those trick questions, right? Which child does your parents love more? We know that the official answer is we love you all the same. And in my household, that's true. Let's see if it's true. But we know, we know there's, uh, I won't get to it. I won't name any names or anything like that. The Gentile and the Jew, God views them the same. He loves them the same. So imagine if you had a church and let's say that you middle people, that you're the Jews and you outside people, you're the Gentiles. And let's imagine we had this mentality that, oh, man, God's chosen people. Moses, descendants, all this stuff. And we would come together to worship, but we kind of treated them a little different. We thought a little bit more highly of them. Would that be weird? Yeah, that would be weird. There'd be some odd dynamics. And so Paul is now writing to this church saying, look, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. You are all the same in Christ Jesus. You are all fellow heirs. You are all fellow members of the body. You are all fellows, partakers of the promise. When it comes to that word, uh, fellow heirs, it's actually one word in the Greek. You can't separate it. And it means inheriting together with. Inheriting together with. And it's used in 1 Peter 3, 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. We need to understand the marriage relationship, remember, is a picture of Christ in the church. And with this, there are things that we learn about salvation even through the picture of marriage, all right? The husband is the head of the wife. The husband is to lead, the wife is to submit, but in doing this, the husband must do it with love. And if you're looking at this in worldly eyes, which one is more important? The one who leads or the one who submits? Worldly eyes say the one that leads. God's eyes say it doesn't matter, you're both equal. Husband and wife, in the sight of God, you are equal. You are fellow heirs of the grace of life. And so in your marriage, Lord willing, one day when you get there, you live that way. I'm not better than you. You're not better than me. God loves both of us. We both love God. So when it comes to the Jew and the Gentile, it's the same idea. Imagine if there was a family and the dad and the mom both passed away. 
Well, they would pass on the inheritance to their children. And most likely, you're thinking, who gets the money? Who gets the money? In today's society, most of the time, it's let's say you got three kids, it's a three-way split. And we think that's even. That's normal, right? Well, in olden days, all right, you think of like King David. King David dies. Who got the kingdom? Oh, please tell me you know that. Maybe I need to go back to all the privileged stuff that you've learned. Who got the kingdom? Solomon. The other ones didn't get the kingdom. Why? Back then, the eldest got more. They got the title. They got the land. They got all of that stuff, okay? So if you're looking at this and you're saying, well, okay, the Jews were first, so they get more. They're in a better spot. They're kind of the firstborn of this, and we're just kind of, no, 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 no. We're all, we're all equal here. We're equal. Ephesians 2.12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of, the, of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Fellow heirs. What about fellow members of the body? Same idea. The word is one word. It means that you belong to the same body. All right? You are all connected in that. Um, you can flip over to 1 Corinthians 12. It's just to the left. I know you can do it. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For even, a, for even as the body is one, yet has many members, all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. So also is Christ. For by one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And we were made to drink of one spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. So think of it this way, okay? If you're in Christ this morning, every single one of you that's a Christian this morning, you are in the same body, you are the same body as everyone else who is in Christ. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your gender, which is a real thing. All right, we all know that. It doesn't matter your schooling preference. You are one body. And God has gifted us in different ways, right? Some of us are an eye and some are a tongue and some is a cool toe and some of us is a nose hair or whatever it might be. And you're all equal in that. But you're all part of one body. Now, think of it this way. You understand the idea of a family, right? You're all members of a family, and so family's a little bit different. You don't invite weird, strange people over for Christmas. You invite your family. And there's certain family time that you would expect and so forth and things like that, right? You are members of one body, so how should you react to one another? Oh, I hope this person doesn't sit next to me. That's not a good idea. That's a member of body with you. We love and cherish our body, do we not? So the people that are our Christians, we should love and we should cherish them knowing that we are one body together. And you think of it this way, okay? If you, if you lost an arm, which may be one of you, would you be able to function? Yeah. But would you be able to function at your top capacity? No. All right? So for some that pick and choose when they come, 
or you're being lazy and you're not serving, is the body functioning at full capacity? No. We're all members. We've all been given a giftedness, all right? And just keeping in mind, this is not just the church, all right? We're also connected to all of the people that are a little bit older than us and a lot older. That's the church that God has given to us. And we are all one body. And we need to function as one body. There is not a part that's better than another and they're all necessary. It goes on and it says, fellow partakers of the promise. Fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This means having a share with one another. And I can liken it to, we got a lot of basketball people, all right? In basketball, if you both grab the ball at the same time, whose is it? Yeah, you call jump ball. Someone's awake. You call a jump ball, all right? You can't play basketball with equal share of the ball. That would be weird trying to do that. Only one of you gets to possess it. So they do a jump ball and then you tip it and then a team has possession, right? In football, if two people, if the offense and the defense catch the ball at the same time, whose ball is it? By rule, it goes to the offense, okay? Because offensive players are better than defensive players. That's just, just how it is, all right? Only one can possess it. You can possess the promise equally with all of the people that are Christians. You all get the promise of salvation. You all get the, the promises of God's goodness and love. It's amazing. If you think of it this way, all right, we're talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles and Paul's role in communicating this. Have you ever been somewhere that you felt you didn't belong? Have you ever been somewhere where you felt people didn't really want you there? Or they made it known to you they didn't want you there? I mean, that, that feels what? It feels crummy. It feels bad. It feels awkward, right? Paul wants the Gentiles to know, look, when you roll into church, you are just the same as the Jews and your role is the same. You are a body. You are fellow heirs. You are fellow partakers of the promise. You are a family. And we know, we know that families can, can bicker with each other and not treat each other the way we should, but we all need to deliberately put off that sin and treat each other as one body. Well, how is this special role possible for the Gentiles? How did all this happen? Well, he says, through the gospel. Through the gospel, and we won't go through Ephesians 2 again, but that's basically what it is. God brought the Gentiles to himself through the blood of Christ. He brought believing Jews to himself through the blood of Christ. And now since both of them are in Christ, they are now one and they are now connected. And you say, you know what? This sounds really elementary though. Didn't they already know this? Well, don't forget in the book of Galatians, at the church of Galatia, that Peter was there. The apostle Peter. And he was interacting and he was dining with the Gentiles. And he was treating everyone equally. But there were some Judaizers that came in and they started to put seeds of doubt in Peter's mind. Should you really be interacting with them? And Peter, he began to pull away and not interact with the Gentiles like he was. And how do you think Paul reacted to that? Paul 
being the steward for the Gentiles came in and slapped Peter around a little bit and said, look, uh-uh, we're all the same, buddy. And Peter said, absolutely. We would call that one of the darkest days of the church when a leader like Peter began to separate himself from other believers. That, that's not good. That's not a good thing. Uh, they had councils and discussions. Remember the whole thing with uh, Peter and the, the sheet, the, the vision that he had with the sheet and the inclusion of the Gentiles. You had Cornelius that was a Gentile that came to know the Lord and, and Peter went to him. This was a huge deal to them. I mean, imagine if you had been taught all of your life that those people are bad. From the time you were a baby, those people are bad. Those people are bad. Those people are bad. Don't talk to those people. Don't interact with those people. And then poof, one day you come to know the Lord and all that's changed. So it, this was crucial that it was documented and it is apparent throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, were the Gentiles part of God's plan? Yes. We already talked about Rahab. There are many other Gentiles, the Queen of Sheba. All right, you have Naaman, the leper, who came to know the one true God. All of these Gentiles who come to know the Lord and follow him. And that was seen throughout the Old Testament, but they didn't really realize it until guys like Paul came and fulfilled their role. Well, let's look at B. A, I think I had was the role of the Gentiles. Sorry, I missed that. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of Christ. B is the role of Paul. And let's read all of verse 6 again and roll into verse 7. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. It says in verse 7 that Paul was made a what? A minister. And isn't it cool? We get to see how he calls himself a prisoner, right? We saw how he's a conduit. We saw how he is a steward. And all of these labels give us a, a, a clearer picture of who Paul is and what he is doing. Well, here he is, he's made a minister, which literally means a servant. Literally means a servant. One who serves. And why is Paul qualified for this role? And what did I give you on your outline? Did I give you a why or did I just give you a, a little thingamajiggy? Yeah, why is Paul qualified for this role? It's really simple and he tells us here. Number one. God wanted him to have it. 
And number two, God empowered him to have it. God wanted him to have it and God empowered him to have it. And this isn't like the, the whole nepotism thing where you think like a, a dad owns a business and so he makes his incompetent son the, his partner and all of that things or whatever it is, all right? Paul, just like us, a rotten sinner, but God is going to rescue him and he's going to save him and he wants him to have this role all right, so look at number one, God wanted him to have it. He says, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. He is now qualified because God visited him with his unmerited favor to save him. And then God empowered him to have it because it says, according to the working of his power. In Colossians 1.29, Paul says, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. So we are right to take a, a saint like Paul and to elevate him to a degree as someone that we want to be like. But we got to understand, how did Paul get in that position? He was off arresting and having Christians killed and God intervened in his life and saved him. And he plucked him up and he gave him the ability to do this. And so we do seek to emulate Paul, but in that we give God all the glory. And when we think, oh, I'm, I'm not that smart and I don't have those connections and you know, I don't have much money and I don't know if anyone will listen to me. Can God not work through you? It's his power. Has he not given to all of us his Holy Spirit? Has he not called us all to share his gospel and to be a witness to him? Paul is qualified because of God. You, Christian, can be a servant of Christ because of God. The second question we want to answer, what does Paul do in this role? What does Paul do in this role? Verse 8, he says, To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. Number one, he preaches. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And you're familiar with Romans 10, all right? That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But then it goes on. How will they hear without a what? Without a preacher. Without a preacher. If you're a Christian, how, do, how did you come to know the Lord? I, I, I actually love that part on your ministry application where I say describe the circumstances of your salvation. And whether it was mom or whether it was dad or whether it was your Sunday school teacher or someone in Awana, sometimes it was at a youth event. Sometimes, a lot of times, it's actually over there in the worship center that people come to know the Lord. I, I love that part. There have been people that have been faithful in your life to share the gospel with you. And for most of you, I seriously doubt it was like you heard it one time and you came to know the Lord. You have people over years and years and years pouring into you and relaying that message. And then finally the Lord used that to convert you. Well, sometimes we think I share someone one time and they didn't listen and nope, I'm done. It didn't, didn't work. No, 
We are to continue to minister and to share and to preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. But secondly, the other part of his role is he illuminates. He illuminates. This is like when you walk into the dark room and you take your iPhone out and you push the little iPhone app or you say, Illuminati, is that what it is, Edwin, or Illuminous? I can't remember what the thing is, but there's, I say, hey, Siri, turn on the flashlight, which I know it's probably going to turn it on right now, and all of that works. It says, and to bring to light, what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things? So he is there to preach the gospel, to preach the good news, but he's also there to shine a light on God's eternal plan and purpose, which includes the Gentiles. Why does Paul do this? Verse 10. To make God's wisdom known. He says, so that, I love the word so, it makes it easy, right? So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. He does what he does to make God's wisdom known. And we know that wisdom is knowing the right thing and doing the right thing. And don't let it be lost on you. What is the mechanism? What is the vehicle that communicates this information to governments and to authorities? The church. It's not Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is. It's the, it's the church that communicates this to the world, all right? So always keep an incredible commitment to the church. Secondly, why does he do it? To make God's plan known. He wants God's wisdom to be known, but he wants to make sure that God's plan is known. Verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. It's all part of God's plan. Jesus living a perfect life, Jesus dying on the cross, Jesus uh, ascending into heaven, the Holy Spirit coming, us being challenged and commanded to go out and to talk about Jesus and the plan, all those things. And we have what? Boldness and confident access through faith in Jesus. And we want others to come to know Jesus. Our last question here, how does this affect the church at Ephesus? How does this affect them? Remember, Paul's writing them a letter. And why is he including this to them? Verse 13, therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are for your glory. They're concerned for Paul. They love Paul. Man, what, Paul, why do you have to be in prison? And he says, look, don't worry about me. This is part of God's plan. God's plan is furthering, and all of this is for your glory. And as we wrap this up, I just, I think I gave you a number one and a number two, maybe. Maybe I gave you nothing. Number one, I want you to know your position in God's plan and in his family. Know your position in God's plan and in his family. For some of you, you, your position is that you're outside of the family. You're not in the kingdom. 
You love your sin. You don't love Jesus. You need to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you get to be a fellow heir, a fellow member, a fellow partaker. Oh, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. But for those of us that are Christians, we're not just here for me, myself, and I. We're here to build up the saints. And we're here to to bring forth the gospel. Number two, understand your role in furthering the gospel. Understand your role in furthering the gospel. And I know that you're not Paul. I know that you're not an apostle. I know that God didn't appear to you on the the road to Keller and blind you and say that you're going to chosen instrument of mine. But it still holds true that we are here to be a conduit of God's love and of God's good news. And so we need to open up our mouth and share it with people. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we are so privileged to have your written word. We know so much. We have forgotten more than some generations ever got to know. And I pray, Lord, that we would listen and that we would learn and that we would apply the truth that we get every Sunday and Wednesday and that we would be a light in a dark and dying world, that we would be like Paul, minister, serving others because of you and your eternal plan. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.